Grace to you and peace from the God who is our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We consider together this morning our lesson from Revelation chapter 21 with the prayer that the Lord will awaken and strengthen us in anticipation of all that's involved in that moment when the Lord will say, I am making everything new. There's just something special about newness. That moment when we hold in our hand that something new that we hope would be ours at Christmas or on a, on a birthday. Maybe it's something simple as a steak package at the grocery store. Maybe it's a new article of clothing. Maybe it's a new cell phone. Or maybe keys to a new car. Or a new home. There's something special about such moments. And we consider them worth remembering. But we live in a world that has been subjected by God to frustration. And so that means that we also have ongoing experience with the heartache of seeing something falling apart in our hands. Have you ever bought a steak only to forget it at the back of the fridge? And to find it again when it's turned brown, but, but not from, from cooking. You know, it's just, it's just a little thing. But our hearts can ache at that. Why is that? Solomon says that the Lord has set eternity in our hearts. That is, the hearts of all people, not, not just Christians. There is in us this sense that if something isn't perfect, if it isn't permanent, it isn't good enough for us. Because after all, we were created for eternity. And so it is with homesickness a longing for that place where everything will be new. That homesickness that is not comfortable or pleasant any more than it is to, to live with a, an ongoing thirst. That new heaven and earth, new Jerusalem, the new us, all these things are hidden from our sight. But they are certain because God's word to us through his servant John is faithful and true and trustworthy. John wrote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, the Greek of the New Testament loves to connect sentences together with the word and. 
that doesn't make for good English or a good translation. Then I saw is literally, and I saw. That phrase appears 19 times in the book of Revelation. And what it can indicate is the beginning of a new vision, as here, then I saw. Or it can be an indication that, that there is some time that passed in between this and the next thing that John saw. So do you think that John seeing a new heaven and a new earth, that is, an absolutely new everything, everything above, everything below, that's what's meant by heaven and earth, everything new. Do you think that was just a, a moment that lasted the length of a sentence being spoken? He certainly was given enough time to recognize that he looked at this new earth, there isn't any sea fresh in his memory, the vision described in Revelation 13, where a beast came out of the sea, summoned by Satan to, to do damage to God's people, or to remember the sea that separated him on that island from God's people whom he loved. Some things that the Bible describes as new are New, new in time. Other things are new in nature. Something whose newness can't be taken away by time, but is beyond that reach. And so, for example, when Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there is a time to be born and a time to die. That's describing there is a set time for those to happen. And that is not something under our control. We struggle against time, as certainly the people of Ukraine do. There is a time for war. There is a time for peace. What John sees and says before us is something that is not new in time, but new in nature and beyond the reach of time. So everything he saw then is still new and will be new forever. Now in his vision, John goes on to say, describes seeing the new Jerusalem and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. In the early 80s, fresh out of the seminary, I was serving a congregation in northern New Jersey and also a preaching station in Manhattan where I would conduct a monthly service uh, in apartment of a member family there. Especially early on, I would take the bus into the city and, of course, take the bus home again. And I kind of anticipated that short window of time when the bus is coming out of the Lincoln Tunnel and kind of going in, in a loop 
and at nighttime the city would, would shine and sparkle. It's something very beautiful. In jarring contrast to having just come out of the subway at Times Square and walking from there to the wonderful Port Authority bus terminal. That commercial showed a floating island of Manhattan over the British countryside. To have them picture, to have us picture, the population, the number of people that they flew from the U.S. to England. But remembering some of the things I saw, I would not be real eager to have that come down near me. But what we have in John's vision is something to long for. The city that John sees is holy, and we're not talking about uh, holy real estate, holy buildings, holy structures. What we're talking about is people. That's what a city means to God. As the Apostle Paul wrote about the bride of Christ, we see that this is a special people, objects of Christ's love. Christ loved the church and made her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. This everything new includes not just the earth, not just the city. It includes new people. I remember a, a mother telling me in a Bible class that her son, who was maybe in the middle grades of grade school, wanted to die. He had told her that. He wanted to die so he could stop sinning. That's one of the things that comes with growing in our faith. We grow in our recognition of how thoroughly sin has affected our fallen nature. And it's not a comfortable thing to face that. But we can also anticipate that time when we will be made thoroughly new inside and out. The hope of many Eastern religions is actually to make it through enough reincarnations to get to cease to exist. The hope of the Muslim is a very tenuous and uncertain thing. For they have to anticipate, first of all, a weighing of their good works against their bad works for the permission to try to walk across a sea of fire on a razor-thin tightrope. Now, Allah is on the other side, but he's just watching to see who makes it, indifferent to whether the individual falls or makes it across. They don't anticipate being with, with Allah because he's just aloof and beyond and separated from all that. What does John set before us? 
He sets before us a salvation that is thoroughly personal and thoroughly about relationships. And the reason for that, why things must be so, is that we will have a new next-door neighbor. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. What is heaven? I remember hearing that question as part of a confirmation examination way back during my vicar year. And that was the only question that had me thinking, well, I know what it is, but how do I say that? Certainly a confirmand would be eager to get the answer out in as few words as possible, hopefully even maybe just three words. And the, the child had a solid answer. Being with God. And with that definition, we realize that just as certainly as God exists, this God that John describes, heaven exists because he is a God who wants to have his people around him. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. His people, their God. A couple of two words tied together that I think we may often read rather quickly past. I don't think those words really resonated with me until after I had, had studied at seminary the book of Hosea. Hosea is that prophet you probably wouldn't want to call for your church this morning. The Lord instructed him to, to marry a promiscuous woman, a prostitute. Hosea's life was to be a living indictment of the people of Israel who were guilty of spiritual adultery. He had three children with that woman. The third, a son, was given the name Lo-Ami, which is Hebrew for not my people. Quite a name to carry around, although his sister's name said not loved. God's blunt message to his people through Hosea is this, you are not my people, and I am not your God. That situation existed because that's what they wanted. And that's what they deserve, just as we deserve by our sin and wanting to be apart from God, free to do things our own way, not recognizing that that is to want death. But surprisingly, the words that follow, they're not my people, I'm not their God, are these. Yet, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, 
you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. That's your new identity, precious beyond our understanding, precious beyond all counting. A new identity that was given to you in your baptism, which I like to think of as an echo of Isaiah chapter 43, the first verse. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Our God. His people. Speaks to a certainty and a wonder. I kind of remember having this vague thought that being in heaven can kind of like being in a huge, huge crowd of people. And maybe we in the wells would be seated in the W section, like up at the top of, I was going to say, the Bradley Center or a stadium. Think of it as being kind of an impersonal crowd. But that picture is not what is set before us here. He, that is the Lord, will wipe every tear from their eyes. The Lord will be directly and intensely aware of you, just as he sees your tears now and keeps them waiting. I want to connect that with God being eternal. When we think of characteristics of God like his power, or his presence, we use the, uh, those omni words. God being omnipresent, present everywhere, as a kid I thought of, well, God is just so big that by virtue of that, he's simply everywhere. But I think it's better to, to think of it and define it more clearly in this way. The God who created the world is not in any way limited by the dimensions of this world, such that he can touch it all, but also that he can cause all of his fullness to dwell in the Christ child. So when it comes to time, God being eternal isn't just that he's always around without getting old, it also can tell us that he is not limited in any way by time so that we should worry about whether he has time for us, for our prayers, or time to be concerned about our tears. So even now, he sees your tears those that you can't help but show to others, and those that, that you hide. He sees them, and he doesn't wipe them away. He cares about them. But in his wisdom also, he recognizes that that longing for something, to hold on to something, can serve a good purpose in our lives. And so he asks us to wait but with the certainty that there is a moment coming where there will be no more death, 
or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. There are times in our lives where we might think that waiting is just incredibly painfully long. I think we might also allow us to consider this that it's long for the Lord who is eager to speak those words and gather us to himself. I am making everything know. He wants us to know what his plan is. So he tells his servant John not what to write, but a reason to write. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Water without cost is for me an echo of Isaiah chapter 55 which begins with these words. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Even you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. What an open, wonderful invitation simply to come. The freeness of it emphasized by buying without money buying without cost. But that's followed by a statement that has a bit of a different tone. A concerned Lord looking at his wandering people, asking the question, why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy there are times when we need to be aware of, of that in our lives, where we forget that we are eternal and where we scramble after the things of this world, caught up in a chase to find and own the latest thing, the, the newest thing. And then we have that disappointment, which is good to be aware of, that we saved up for this thing. We bought this thing and it didn't do what we thought it would do. It didn't fill our lives. It didn't fill us. Why do we do that? In terms of what our Lord has promised and in terms of what our Lord will give. we may fall into seeking to be at home in this world. Homesickness. The student away from home, first year of college, not a, a pleasant thing. Something maybe to try to avoid in silence by thinking about all the bad things at home. But we are people who can afford to be homesick because we have 
a home that is eternal. Amen.